Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Keeping the Devil's Company, about the totalizing worldview of neoliberalism. For our music today, we'll bookend the program with songs by Henry Threadgill coming on the heels of the Reagan era in the United States, and in between offer Sun Ra and his Myth Science Orchestra from the 1960 release Angels and Demons at Play, from an era of collective hope to one of individual despondency. From the 1960s to the 90s, politicians and economists, including several Nobel laureates, engaged in the projects that would result in what is now widely recognized as neoliberalism, a totalizing worldview with theological underpinnings that appears inescapable, but that our guest, Adam Kotzko, believes is beginning to lose its mystifying grip on us. We'll open with Threadgill's The Devil is on the Loose and Dancing with the Monkey from the 1988 release, Rag, Bush, and All. Since the late 1970s, neoliberalism has reshaped public policy and arguably every area of life on the model of market competition, which it presents as the most authentic expression of human freedom. But Adam Kotzko asserts that such a freedom, the freedom to compete, exists solely to generate blame. When we are given a choice, we are always being set up to fail. We've been joined on Interchange by several scholars to discuss neoliberalism. With Phil Morawski, we tracked its origins and theorists and its dissemination via think tanks. With Melinda Cooper, we discovered Nobel laureates creating policy positions undermining the revolutions of the 1960s by disparaging and defunding any social relation outside of the heteronormative patriarchal family. Wendy Brown showed us the depoliticizing nature of marketing selves. Ilana Gershon then showed us how ineffectual and exhausting the marketed self actually is. And Will Davies even showed us how happiness is just another behavioral bludgeon, deepening our sense of failure. Well, why aren't you happy when you have all this freedom and opportunity? In this way, neoliberalism demonizes the single, solitary human agent. You only have yourself to blame. Indeed, you have been made blameworthy. Adam Kotzko tracks this totalizing worldview through the lens of political theology and demonstrates its parallels to Christianity, specifically how it deals with the problem of evil and the concept of free will. As Kotzko tells it, God has given us free will so that we will freely choose not to use it. To use free will, though surely the highest form of human agency, is to rebel against the perfect working order of God's creation. And so too, the great and all-knowing market renders freedom of choice our greatest power and duty, while preordaining that choice will lead to failure, ours, not the market's, not God's. In this way, we are always already fallen. And now, keeping the devil's company with Adam Kotzko on Energy on WFHB. Let's begin with your title, Neoliberalism's Demons on the Political Theology of Late Capital. What is neoliberalism to Adam Kotzko in that, that first word of your title? Yeah, I view neoliberalism um, kind of according to the what I understand to be the consensus definition, which is um, 
kind of a global um, political economic order that is uh, centered on reshaping all of society on the model of um, the the free capitalist market. Um, this project began, uh, you know, in the in the early '70s, but took off in in earnest with uh, the election of Margaret Thatcher and um, Ronald Reagan uh, in the West. Um, and once the Soviet Union fell, it was basically the only economic model in town. Is it generally considered just another version of capitalism, or it, is it? Uh, I know we're going to get into how it's not, but but there's yeah. a sense where people, uh, I think, do think of it as a flavor of capitalism. Yeah, I think that that's accurate. Um, I think that it's helpful though to view capitalism as kind of having multiple stages of evolution. Uh, not every era's capitalism is the same, um, and there are you know important kind of economic differences. Um, like right now, I would say that the the degree of of labor exploitation is um, much higher and um, increasing um, in Western countries. Uh, levels of inequality are much higher than they were in the post-war era, and there are important cultural differences as well. Kind of um, sometimes I think that. When you watch a TV show, the only moral exhortation you're ever going to hear is do your job. It's as though we can't get outside of this notion of work and self-marketing and kinds of like we have to be kind of always on selling ourselves. And I think that that's a distinctive cultural feature of neoliberalism that wasn't true in previous eras. Well, how about then let's move on to demons. Um, so um, there's a, a distinct, um, obviously, th and theological is in here as well. So demons or demonization is a part of the title as well. Uh, uh, I think we are uh, demonized in neoliberal, neoliberalism, but by demons, it seems like, right? Right. I think the, the title is, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit over clever, perhaps, because <laughs> I think the when you hear the word like neoliberalism's demons, you're going to think, oh, Rahm Emanuel, or you know somebody, <laughs> you know, like somebody who's actually imposing it on us. Right. Uh, but I uh, kind of turn it around, and, and as you say, that we're actually the demons ultimately in neoliberalism, and I mean that in a, a specific way, drawing from the Christian tradition. Uh, where when they ask themselves, how is it possible that uh, Satan and his angels could fall away from God. Um, you know, they're angels, they have direct knowledge of God, they have all their needs fulfilled, they're, you know, they're eternal beings. How could this happen? And it seems to me that the stories that they tell about this generally seem to converge on this, um, this trap that God sets for them, uh, where he demands instantaneous obedience the moment they're created, and as we know, free creatures don't always spontaneously like submit, right? And it seems as though he actually needs the demons to do their evil work so that he can kind of um, show how cool he is by you know reversing it and, and drawing good out of evil. Um, but he needs them to freely choose to be evil because um, if he directly created them evil, then they wouldn't be evil. They would just be following their nature. And so it's this complicated moral dynamic and how it connects to neoliberalism is that I think that the, the core gesture of neoliberalism is to give us a choice but set us up to fail um, so that whatever the outcome is, it's always our fault, even though the system needs us to do those things. 
Right, right, right. And we'll uh, expand on that as well. So uh, so this is part of, uh, again, as the title says, a political theology. Um, this is, I think, the second book that I've read fairly recently that, that makes use of some aspect of Carl Schmitt's work. So can you uh, give us a little bit about what, what is political theology and why, uh, why uh, use Carl Schmitt um, in, in this era anyway? Yeah, I mean, Carl Schmitt is obviously uh, problematic for a lot of ways with his, uh, you know, affiliation with the Nazi party and just being a crazy right winger in general. Um, but I think that in his book, Political Theology, he hit on something true and something that a lot of leftist commentators actually took up much more, I think, than the right wing. And that is to say that in any given historical moment, um, there is going to be a political structure and there's going to be a structure of values or norms or something like that. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I basically define theology more broadly, not just about God, but being about kind of um, the most, the ultimate concern that like helps to organize our, our way of life and our way of thinking about how we belong um, and what we, how we should live. And so he noticed that the political structure and the value structure tended to correspond in any given political moment. Um, that they have the same kind of structure, that similar concepts will recur in both of them. And he picks a moment in early modern Europe where he says um, the conception of the absolute ruler or the king who um, lives in a law-governed society but is able to suspend those laws is similar, parallel to the Christian conception of God who set up you know, the laws of our world but can violate them through miracles. Um, and that's his key example, and that's... Um, why most, um, up until recent years, most studies of uh, political theology have centered on the notion of sovereignty, because both God and the ruler are supposed to have sovereignty. But he also talks about the fact that over time, given the fact that this connection exists between political and theological or value-laden realms, that um, sometimes concepts can kind of migrate between the two realms. And so he thinks, you know, in the um, shift to modernity, um, some of those theological concepts wound up just becoming our political concepts. And so I think that both of these elements, the fact that these parallels exist at any given historical moment, and that there can be like these transfers um, across time between the two realms, that this is a really interesting insight that doesn't have to be tied to Carl Schmitt's own right-wing agenda. <laughs> You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show today is about the totalizing worldview of neoliberalism, what we might call the theology of capitalism. And our guest is Adam Kotzko, author of two recent books published by Stanford University Press, The Prince of Our Times, about the social and political uses of the devil, and Neoliberalism's Demons, on the political theology of late capital, which highlights how individuals are trapped within an ideology of free choice. Uh, so theology in the sense of making meaning of life. Right. I know what political economy is. I know that there are political scientists, but I never really thought much about political theology. Well, I think that's partly because the founding like bargain of European modernity is the idea that religion should stay out of politics. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the Peace of Westphalia, this treaty that uh, determined that every country, their ruler can just determine what the religion is in their country um, and ultimately the development of secularism and toler uh, toleration, 
um, it set up this system where um, religion is this foreign element that does not belong in politics. And if it ever does be, uh, become part of politics, it can only be violent and irrational and stuff like this. And so why these two don't seem to mix is uh, simply due to the way that Europeans chose to try to solve the constant wars of religion that happened after the Reformation. And the fact that we're still living within that paradigm today is, to say the least, kind of strange. Because if religion is about how you live your life and about how you want to form your community and about the values that um, ideally, like most religions would say, um, you know, values that everybody should adhere to, how can it not be involved in politics? How can that not be political? Um, so I think that one thing that's helpful about political theology is to kind of break down that artificial barrier that secularism has set up and put us in a position um, where we will say, for instance, of right-wing evangelicals, it's not that they're wrong on some kind of like formal level, like they're doing it wrong because they're bringing theology into their politics. No, we oppose them because they're bad and they want bad things. It's not because they're like bringing gross religion into politics where it doesn't belong. Right. So religion offers uh, particular uh, metaphors for understanding life, and these things can be mapped pretty pretty well onto our uh, political ideas as well? Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, when I was talking earlier about the fact that we're constantly selling ourselves or self-marketing or constantly on the job or on the clock, I think that that shows that our self-concept, um, even on a day-to-day, -day, very intimate level, is kind of shaped by the political economic order of neoliberalism that's trying to um, make everything in the world work like a market. Mm -hmm. Give everything meaning in that particular way. Right. Yeah. It's a, a totalizing project. Exactly. So yes. in your uh, book title, uh, well, one more phrase to go, late capital. What, what, is, what does that mean? That's a phrase that often comes in for critique because it implies that capitalism is almost over. I would say that like, capitalism has lasted, like, let's say, 500 years or something like that. So the idea that we're entering into the late stage like 40 years ago is not that unrealistic or that, even that optimistic. You, know, you can say the late stage of something is the last, like, I don't know, 20%, 25%, who knows. Um, but it's basically, I think when people think in terms of late capital, it's not that it's necessarily going to be the, the end stage in the sense that capitalism is going to go away necessarily. It's about um, the fact that capitalism has reached a certain end point of saturation. There's nothing left for ca capitalism to kind of colonize anymore, that um, the entire world has been kind of overrun by the capitalist market and capitalist exploitation, and there's no more, there's no more room for what Marxists call uh, primitive accumulation because everything is already claimed, everything's already spoken for. Um, and that leads to, I think, distinctive strategies to try to head off collapse when you no longer have the release valve of like the outside to go take from. Mm -hmm. I think that's the key aspect of the book, right? The key aspect of what neoliberalism is, is trying to deal with the lateness of capitalism. Yes. Yeah. And um, I think a lot of a lot of what neoliberalism does is try to create conditions of art artificial scarcity where they don't need to exist. Um, the clearest example is um, intellectual property, which is a huge part of the neoliberal order. And in principle, the fact that I know something does not take away from the fact that you also know it. You know, that's it's not a competitive good. Information is inherently not competitive. And yet, 
through these legal um, mechanisms of intellectual property, it is treated as though it is a scarce good that only one person could own. And I think that actually intellectual property, even though I don't really do much with it in the book, is a great example of the fact that the state is so crucial to the neoliberal product project. Uh, like a lot of people treat it as though it's just um, just kind of brain dead libertarianism, like the state just uh, you know gets out of the way and the market does its work. But no, the state has to very, very actively, very energetically um, enforce and create and recreate all of these um, market structures that don't exist naturally. Um, and I think, again, the intellectual property case is an especially unambiguous one. It's time for a break. This is Medicine for a Nightmare from Sun Ra and his Miss Science Orchestra off of the 1960 album Angels and Demons at Play. Stay with us for more on neoliberalism's demons when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is Keeping the Devil's Company with author Adam Kotzko. In this segment, we examine the period prior to the advent of neoliberalism, what Kotzko calls Fordism, a time most Americans believe to embody the true economic and social structure of the country, and while relatively prosperous, was extremely racist and misogynist. So in uh, 2014, uh, Phil Morawski wrote a paper where uh, he examines the disinclination to treat the neoliberal political project as a serious intellectual project motivating a series of successes in the public sphere, and the economists seem especially remiss in this regard. And Morawski has given us a um, uh, history of the formation of what he calls the Neoliberal Thought Collective, beginning in 1938 at a colloquium in Paris named after U.S. journalist and public intellectual Walter Lippmann, and the men who attended it are now 
probably fairly well known and not just by their acolytes. Hayek, von Mises are two in particular. But before uh, this sort of neoliberal project, there is uh, a thing that you term Fordism, uh, which is another version of, or a way in which you sort of get around using the word liberalism, I think, in the book. Mm-hmm. What, what is Fordism and why does it precede the neoliberal project? I think uh, Fordism is a different configuration of the relationship between the state and the the market, where the state um, makes selective use of socialist structures and market structures to try to, um, you know, create like the the highest quality of life for, you know, a broad middle class um, in the developed countries. Um, So this is uh, in Europe, this takes the form of the welfare state. In the U.S., we don't quite get there, but there were much greater kind of um, uh, social protections and uh, and you know greater like infrastructure investment, greater education access, and things like that in this era. Um, and I think that one aspect of Fordism that people don't really emphasize enough is the fact that so many of those gains uh, were determined by this project of basically beating the Soviets. Uh, by showing that capitalism can be fair, that it can be humane, that it can uh, be more successful. And the fact that they needed to use these kind of um, quasi-socialist techniques, that as soon as the gun was a- away from their head, they started dismantling it, basically. So I, th- I think that a lot of Americans especially view the post-war Fordist era even if they don't call it that, they view that as the norm or the ideal. Like this is, we've somehow deviated from that or we need to somehow get back to that. But I think the emphasis on the bizarre circumstances of the Cold War and the kind of mixture of different techniques of governance, I think it shows that the that Fordism was always a kind of a compromise formation. It was always kind of incoherent. And as it turns out, the very people who benefited most from Fordism were the most enthusiastic to dismantle it, the the Reagan Democrats. And so while I do agree that Fordism was better, I also think we need to take seriously how it collapsed and not treat it as just bad people came in and passed bad legislation. And we can like reverse that somehow. Again, because I find the history of these things and these ideas as fascinating as anything else. So I do want to kind of walk through some of these uh, texts that you use. Uh, one in particular, again, this is a classic, The, the Great Transformation, uh, written in 1944. Is it Karl uh, Polanyi? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, Polanyi's book is a really fascinating work that um, since the financial crisis especially, it's kind of come back into vogue among uh, leftist commentators. And it was published in uh, 1945, the same year as Hayek's Road to Serfdom. And he was arguing against that type of like proto-neoliberal or um, libertarian view. Um, he's continually referring to this, this notion, which had become common sense, which is that markets spontaneously arise. They're just um, a feature of human life um, and that the state does best to just um, keep its hand off of them. And Polanyi shows that was just absolutely never the case, mm-hmm. that um, markets require – markets are not a historical norm. Um, certainly structuring an entire society around markets is not a historical norm. That's an innovation of modernity um, that in previous historical eras there were, of course, markets and trade, but they were in much more limited uh, – a much more limited sphere and just very purpose-driven 
not just an open-ended commitment to just having markets um, as much as possible. And he talked about how much state management was necessary uh, for a few different reasons. The first was to get people to become laborers in the first place, um, to kind of kick them off the land where they could have subsistence farming and like make their own living and kind of have some, some control over their own life. Removing social protections and kind of support for the poor so that they had no choice but to sell their labor. This is an area also, I think, where um, another work that I discuss at the same time is by, uh, Sylvia Federici. Mm-hmm. She talks about how some of the techniques that they used in the colonies to kind of use, you know, forced labor and slavery in colonial spheres, they like took the innovations from there and kind of transferred them back to Europe as well. So colonization is actually intrinsic to um, the development of capitalism. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show today is about the totalizing worldview of neoliberalism, what we might call the theology of capitalism. And our guest is Adam Kotzko, author of two recent books published by Stanford University Press, The Prince of Our Times, about the social and political uses of the devil, and Neoliberalism's Demons, on the political theology of late capital, which highlights how individuals are trapped within an ideology of free choice. Polanyi charts this history where for about a hundred years, there were no major wars between the European powers because this the original liberal system with the gold standard, with all governments kind of on permanent austerity, with no protections for labor, all this kind of stuff, like just held things together so that nobody could kind of afford to go to war. And then it just spectacularly collapsed um, in World War I, um, leading people to try various experiences, uh, experiments with other kinds of economies, such as you know communism or national socialism or New Deal, moderate liberalism, this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think when I was reading that book and I was reading about the collapse of the original liberal order and the original free trade, like globalization order of European colonialism, I, I saw uncanny parallels to things like the financial crisis and even the fact that um, so many of the European powers uh, were in denial and they were trying to like hold together the old system and hold together the shards of the old system, even though it was no longer working and it was not coming back. Um, it just seemed uncanny. Like I can, I can see why people have reached for Polanyi as a way of understanding our political moment. Give me a little bit of background on your use of genealogy. I think it's one of the, again, another one of the interesting things about your practice is, is sort of saying, you know, we have to find other ways to sort of make use of this, uh, these disciplines of looking at history, sociology, economy, uh, politics, uh, trying to make sure that we're not, um, being too narrow in how we view these things and, and sort of the creative aspects of, of working through in a genealogical method. Yeah, I think the the core insight of genealogy is it's an attempt to, um, I would say, to do a materialist history of ideas. Like the standard history of ideas would be, you know, like Descartes wrote this and then Hume responded and then Kant reconciled it or whatever, you know, like just it's all taking place in people's heads and in their writing. And what both Nietzsche and Foucault, who are really the pioneers of the genealogical method, what they want to do is take these ideas and place them in practices and power structures and show how 
how they help to um, propagate and reinforce these these structures. That Bacon's uh, dictum that knowledge is power, like Foucault and Nietzsche both take that very, very seriously, that we have to contextualize it in that. And I think one thing that both of them emphasize is that once you kind of step back from this intellectual history approach that thinks that something is like argued for and then somebody else responds and makes a counter argument and then they win the argument or something like that, that once you get past this requirement of like coherence or immediate kind of intelligibility, you'll see that these ideas go in really, really unexpected directions, that they can wind up in places that you never would have thought. Like Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morals, one of the essays uh, takes the concept of debt, you know, of like literally owing somebody a monetary debt or like an obligation of that kind. And he shows in a very speculative way how it winds up uh, producing Christianity and the notion of God. And um, the same thing with Foucault, like he talks about concepts of prisons and shows how, while common sense would say that prison is just a very specific subset of society, that actually prison uh, concepts uh, surrounding prison shape all uh, cultural institutions to, to some extent. I think a genealogy is something that it relies on intuition. It relies on um, a certain creative approach that it's not provable in the same way, for instance, that, um, that Christian notions of freedom and demonization and original sin kind of inform capitalist market relations um, I don't know that I could demonstrate that empirically, but I think it provides a unique window that makes our current situation strange by connecting it to the past in an unexpected way. Mm-hmm. It's time for another break. This is A Call for All Demons, another from Sun Ra off the 1960 album Angels and Demons at Play. More with Adam Kotzko on the devilish details of neoliberalism when Interchange returns. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is Keeping the Devil's Company, and our guest is Adam Kotzko, theologian, religious scholar, culture critic, translator, 
and author, most recently, of Neoliberalism's Demons on Political Theology and Late Capital. In this segment, we turn to the problem of evil for both the omnipotent God and the omnipotent market. aspect of demonization or even God in the book, and God ties back to your previous book, right, The um, the Prince of This World, which is about how the devil is intrinsic in a lot of this as well, um, starts with God, right? Starts with the idea if there's a God and he's good and God is all-powerful and evil happens, there's a problem, right? <laughs> when there's a problem in reconciling God as good when there's evil, um, and, you know, this is a, a large part of your argument, again, th- with the previous book, with how uh, Christian communities are formed, with how we organize structurally and socially as well. Uh, so let's let's start with that, because, again, you lay it on to like the market becomes the version of God for neoliberalism. Uh, so let's start with the, the problem of God being good and evil happening and, and how that has made meaning for you in, in this situation. It's a really fascinating problem. What's really interesting to me is, like, like you say, there's an obvious contradiction, okay? If God desires good things, if he has an unlimited ability to get what he wants, then good should only result. And uh, so evil throws a monkey wrench into that. <laughs> and to make this math work out, you need to eliminate one of them, right? Like, maybe God isn't all-powerful. Maybe God isn't good. But what theologians always do is they eliminate the only one for which we have any direct evidence, which is that evil happens. And they try to reinterpret evil in a way that kind of spins it so it can be good. You know, like, um, your suffering isn't just meaningless suffering, it's a punishment, it's a test, it's something that's goal-oriented, it's something that God will uh, bring something good out of. In a way, the history of Christian theology is a way of trying to deny the existence of evil, our plain experience of the existence of evil. And I think that uh, neoliberal kind of market theology is the same, uh, because no market outcome can be bad. Uh, markets can't fail. They can only be failed. Um, you know, that we, in a way, if something appears to be wrong, it's probably because the state is interfering, or it's just people getting what they've chosen, this kind of thing. Um, there's kind of a refusal to acknowledge that uh, market outcomes can be bad. And that's why I think the financial crisis was such a blow to the legitimacy of the system, is because not only was it just this hugely negative effect that didn't seem to have any any bearing on uh, individual choices or worth or something like that, it's just like the, an economy-wide catastrophe. And then they don't even necessarily follow their own stated rules in order to fix it. In the previous book, I had talked about how theology develops actually from where these attempts to explain away evil break down and then they come up with a new system. Um, I think Trump is trying to offer a new system of accounting for evil. It's that the system is rigged against white people or something like that or against America and we just need to fix it and then like uh, we'll start triumphing again. It's uh, super simplistic. It's not convincing to most people. But it is at least a solution which the mainstream Democrats have not offered. And in in working with within sort of Murawski's framework, you know, the market can know knows more than you do. 
it passeth understanding, right? So the, the answer is you can't know how to make the right decision the way the market will know, you know, have enough information the way you can't, if you're trying to like intervene or interfere politically or in policy, you're going to make a decision that the market would know more and make differently because you can't answer the way the market can. Right. The market's ways are not our ways. I think this leads to another kind of element of neoliberalism that I didn't really talk about in the book, which is this fetishization of information, uh, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, enabled by the development of, of computers and internet and stuff like this. But leads to uh, this fascination with like big data. And so if we just like turned on a computer and had it process more and more data, somehow meaningful results will occur. Um, To me, it just, it seems like nonsense. It seems like, I think big data is about as credible as astrology at this point, Uh, but people are investing billions and billions of dollars in it. And I think that that's another example of the kind of irrational fetishization of of this. uh, Like at the end of the book, I say that in part, the market actually relieves us of responsibility because we don't have to understand anything. We don't have to decide anything. We, we let the market do that for us. And I think that the computer, especially as hooked up to these capitalist firms, is taking that too. Like, even though the AI produces stupid results, even though the automatic toilet flushes 14 times when you're sitting on it or something like that, somehow we have this idea that it would be better if this non-human quasi-mechanical agency were making this decision for us. And I just, I don't understand it. You're in uh, good company there. I haven't understood it myself. So, uh, but you understand, you do, you can understand the psychological uh, impulse to have decisions made for you, uh, in, especially in a world in which there are too many options or there are no particularly good options. You know, I think it's the strength of, of the military in some sense for so many people is that it takes away your decision making process. You don't have, you follow, right? Uh, maybe being parts of certain other groups, parts of religious communities communities gives you a structure that you don't have to really uh, then, quote unquote, make those individual conscience driven choices. Yeah, it could be that this is actually a more complex dynamic within neoliberalism. Like they actually give us so many choices to make us sick of making choices so that we will then accept uh, the outcome uh, out of just sheer exhaustion. (laughs) That is how I often feel about it. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show today is about the totalizing worldview of neoliberalism, what we might call the theology of capitalism. And our guest is Adam Kotzko, author of two recent books published by Stanford University Press, The Prince of Our Times, about the social and political uses of the devil, and Neoliberalism's Demons, on the political theology of late capital, which highlights how individuals are trapped within an ideology of free choice. We mentioned uh, Melinda Cooper a couple of times, and one of the uh, uh, fascinating parts of her book, obviously, are, are the ways they work to uh, reframe the family, right? So it's in a period where the family begins to um, disintegrate, in, a, in not in its 
not in its, I suppose, general structure, but that other ways of being, other ways of living are given some credence and support by the state, by welfare systems, so that a single mother can raise a child, so that you can you can be different, you can have different types of social uh, cohesion and be supported within that. And so there's a, there's a reach for the a particular group of theorists to try to find ways back to make the family the central aspect of support. Take away welfare, take away the state assistance, demonize those aspects of it, and you're thrust back on family support only. This is where, um, you know, the demonizing of the welfare queen comes in as well. Right. Um, even more recently, it connects with the demonization of millennials. You know, the it's well known that millennials are much closer to their parents, much more dependent on their parents, much more likely to live uh, with their parents uh, longer into adulthood. And uh, the media coverage acts as though this is just them all unaccountably being like lazy or unadventurous or something like this, which is... Uh, not the case. It's this is actually a public policy success. The millennial is the goal of all this neoliberal policy making, which is precisely to make young people more dependent on their family, um, more kind of pliable uh, to market norms as well. It's just it's such a typical neoliberal move that um, the people who are actually uh, bringing about the end goal of neoliberal policy are treated as though they're just a bunch of lazy, wimpy, you know, um, unaccomplished, uh, entitled, you know, like all of these, these, uh, these attributes don't actually match up. But so you mentioned also the welfare queen, um, you know, she has a bunch of contradictory elements too. you know, she's poor and yet she's buying a Cadillac or buying filet mignon or something like this. Uh, right. This is at the the beginning of the this particular uh, history, I suppose, of the way we we start in with neoliberalism, and and, and it's this way you kind of track through. I think what Will Davies sets out in his book on on neoliberalism, but these stages of neoliberalism. So uh, this is an aggressive move at the time, right? The, the combative role of neoliberalism, where there again, this is in the seventies or late sixties, early seventies, where they begin to sort of create these narratives of demonizing certain groups yeah exactly um uh and taking existing racial and other prejudices and kind of redirecting them for the ends of this new system the identification of welfare with the single black woman who is somehow victimizing the state somehow taking advantage of white generosity and abusing it and living large uh without doing any work um all of these accusations fit exactly with how people talked about witches in the early modern period uh, during the witch hunts, um, that they're trying to get something for nothing, that they are you know, breaking up families, that they are uh, you know, victimizing the community. One writer on witches say, says that, that the witches are soon going to depopulate all of Christendom um, with their witchy ways. And it's often treated as though this is just kind of one last outgrowth of medieval superstition or something in early modernity. The fact that this happens uncomfortably late, uncomfortably close to like revolutionary war times and all this is just like, oh, it's this weird hangover of old beliefs. But Silvia Federici, who I mentioned earlier, uh, says, no, it's not an accident that the powers that be were actually trying to mobilize these sentiments so that they could discipline women, so that they could kind of... Um, 
configure the family of that time in the way that they wanted to by removing women's control over their own bodies and their reproduction and things like that. And we see a similar agenda being pursued now in an attempt to kind of uh, reestablish um, a version of that older order. Um, and this, and I think that this is this is one area that proves the productivity of the genealogical approach and the attention to to theology for shedding light on our on our current situation. It's time for our final break. Here's a last cut from Sun Ra's Angels and Demons at Play. This is Demon's Lullaby. Stay with us for more with author and religious scholar Adam Kotzko when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. In our final segment with Adam Kotzko, we'll parse the difference between neoliberals and neoconservatives as priests of different churches, but sharing the same God. And then we'll turn, inevitably, to Trump. So uh, one thing that was useful for me in this book, too, was trying to understand the differences between a neoliberal and a neoconservative, but both being um, uh, sort of cooperating within the neoliberal order as well. Uh, You point out the sort of distinction of how uh, these two groups deal with homosexual um, response, like the response to homosexuals in uh, family relationships. Uh, that it creates uh, their own particular responses, gives us a good sense of the differences between the neoconservative and the neoliberal. Basically, the the neoliberals and neoconservatives have always been allies in this project. Um, the neoliberals are more hopeful. They're like, every gay person can be a conformist just like straight people. Uh, what a great opportunity. And the neoconservative position, though, 
is to demonize gay people, but insist that their lifestyle is a choice, because that um, is what allows them to judge them morally. Whereas neoliberals are like, well, the sheer fact of being gay is not a choice, so it's not morally relevant. What is relevant is how you express it in your relationships, and we will accept you if you conform to the, the model of heterosexual monogamy. So there's kind of there's more room to maneuver in the neoliberal version than the neoconservative version, obviously, but it's still very narrow. I obviously support gay marriage. I'm glad that that is an opportunity that people have. I know it makes a big difference in people's lives, but I always have this sense of ambivalence um, that's probably better illustrated with gays in the military. I'm like, I'm glad that you can serve in this institution that probably shouldn't exist in the first place. <laughs> yeah, please don't. Yeah, right, don't. right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Now, those those are interesting dilemmas because, you know, it is one of inclusion or the idea of joining or belonging or being accepted uh, is being accepted into these normative institutions that are damaging in the first place, where you always want people to stand outside of those particular institutions uh, in, in a way uh, conceiving their outsiderness as a gift uh, against those institutions. And yet, of course, people do just want to be accepted and want what they are and who they are and how they are to be normative in, in many ways. Right. And I think this is one area where, where some leftists who view themselves as more faithful Marxists and that all they want to talk about is class and that all these identity issues are a distraction or they themselves are neoliberal. Um, I think that they're really incredibly wrongheaded at their um, kind of closing down areas uh, where we could build alliances that are desperately needed, um, just with a very narrow view that we need to find ways on the left to affirm these identities and these these structures of meaning that are so important to people without compromising our values. But I think our values actually do better support it than the neoliberal values that are currently attempting to kind of scratch that itch. I did want to you to talk about a couple of things. One is basically the way um, you discuss God entrapping us as uh, in sin, in a sense, um, or to become demons, and the way neoliberalism entraps us in ways in which we we think we have a choice or the choice is not really a choice and we make it and fail. And in a sense, these are two to the way the, the theodicy works within the neoliberal system is that it sort of traps us in failure, even giving us the illusion of some sort of choice that we fail. Right. It's, uh, it's, it's purely, um, it's not freedom in the sense of like spontaneity, creativity, unexpected adventure or whatever. Freedom exists in the neoliberal um, worldview solely to generate blame. When we're given a choice, we are always being set up to fail. Um, and I think that once we recognize that, um, that a lot of strategies that people use to try to affect change uh, start to look obviously wrong. Uh, uh, for instance, I think of you know, like the, the notion that we're somehow going to fix climate change through consumer choices or something like that. This is obviously wrongheaded. Obviously, the system is setting us up to fail and then um, blaming us for not buying the environmentally friendly products or whatever. Um, I call at the end of the book for us to actually develop a broader, more collective notion of freedom that kind of escapes from this um, individualism. But I think even more important is to escape this um, dynamic of blame. The system demonizes us and, and blames us and shames us at every step of the way. And in our spare time, 
we often freelance for the system, shaming and blaming each other. Um, this is not to say that no behavior is blameworthy or that nobody needs to be shunned in some way, but I think the amount that is occurring is disproportionate and is a sign not of a healthy sense of self-identity and values, but of kind of aping the systems of power that are making us feel miserable and passing that along by making each other feel miserable as well. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show today is about the totalizing worldview of neoliberalism, what we might call the theology of capitalism. And our guest is Adam Kotzko, author of two recent books published by Stanford University Press, The Prince of Our Times, about the social and political uses of the devil, and Neoliberalism's Demons on the Political Theology of Late Capital, which highlights how individuals are trapped within an ideology of free choice. Yeah, it's one of the strange, like every every page uh, frequently holds a contradiction or every thought uh, that you imagine being making sense on an individual level or to say your individualism is about, you know, self uh, fulfillment and uh, self-awareness and trying to strive to be the best. Um, it's such a horrible perspective. And yet, as you note, it's the it's almost the only one we have. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's very difficult to think past it. And I know in my everyday life, I am still trapped within that paradigm as well. Uh, it's um, I don't claim to have the answer or to be the model for how people should necessarily live their lives. Um, but I think it just points to just how difficult the situation is and and how how urgent it is for us to work together to come up with something different. But I'm pretty sure whatever the solution is, I don't think that the options that the system is offering us are going to undo the system. <laughs> No, that's not its goal. Well, uh, before, uh, I know I just have a few more minutes, but I, I, I'm, I feel that I've done a terrible job of not talking about Trump, but I've been through so many years now. It's weird that if it's years I've been through it now of talking about Trump or talking about the reason for Trump or talking about how it is that Trump can be such an awful person and yet evangelicals love Trump. Um, I know I know you have your own uh, own take on this. So if you don't mind, um, how did Trump happen? Well, I mean, Trump happened because of the Electoral College and because of some fluke, very close elections in key states. Like, I don't want to attribute too much meaning uh, to Trump or too much historical necessity. There tends to be kind of a fatalism about it. Um, I do think that he, the fact that he could happen, that a fluke like this could happen, shows some of the weaknesses of the neoliberal system. Um, and that's kind of... Uh, I, I was one of the first ones to write a post-Trump neoliberalism book, and I think that having that retrospective um, perspective showed me how integral like racism and sexism, homophobia, all these things were to the neoliberal project. Um, and so I view him as like a mutation and ultimately an attempt to save neoliberalism from itself by finally giving us the true um, market competition, the true evaluation uh, the true, you know, uh, best people win scenario. Um, but I, I do think it's, it's very interesting to me. I've done a lot of interviews about the book and I always am ready for Trump questions. 
and almost nobody wants to talk about Trump. <laughs> well, it's one, you know, it is one that, that, that I've approached and talked about. You know, so many things have been difficult to try to understand about this. Uh, I like very much the, the sort of theological concepts here, trying to understand the, the nature of these traps and the nature uh, in which the neoliberal world order in, invades all aspects of life. That, I think it's, t as you say already, or we've already said, it's totalizing. I don't know what Trump is. You know, I think there's a, there's a point where you say that you were prepared for Trump, uh, the Trump, the Trump that's, that, that was able to speak about his nasty exploits and not be in trouble for it. Um, you know, because I think you pointed out that people, uh, politicians prior to that were arguing uh, that, you know, there was such a thing as legitimate rape. Um, you know, I think uh, there was a Missouri senator or Missouri uh, congressman who said something of that nature. And you point out that they lost their elections, these these particular politicians. But but you you said it kind of opened the field for for someone like Trump being able to speak that way. Right. Yeah. The Tea Party definitely put um, uh, paved the way for Trump. And this is yet another aspect of like another example of the American forgetfulness, because it's been three years and it's already as though the Obama administration never happened. Like the only thing people remember is that Merrick Garland was um, not, you know, put on the Supreme court or something like that. It's just like this absolute historical forgetting that sets it. It seems like we have like a trailing four year window and that's it. Um, and to even remember those kind of things, like um, it, sometimes it makes me feel as though I'm actually going insane. That's our show. We'll close with our bookend tune from Henry Threadgill. This is Little Pocket Sized Demons from the 1993 release Too Much Sugar for a Dime. Our thanks to Adam Kotzko for joining us to discuss political theology and the totalizing form of capitalism called neoliberalism. Adam Kotzka will be in Bloomington to participate in Indiana University's annual Critical Ethnic Studies Symposium, which will bring into dialogue two fields of insurgent study, the undercommons and destituent power. The symposium explores the work of Fred Moten, Stefano Harney, and Giorgio Agamba in order to explore social life that evades political constraints, such as citizenship, sovereignty, and governance. The symposium dates are March 26th through the 28th. You can find out more online at destituentcommons.com. Thank you for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Executive producer is Cade Young. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. WFHB.